Hi, welcome to the first episode of Codes and Chaos. I'm the host, Cece. I've always wanted to have a podcast. A lot of people tell me I'm a good storyteller and that my sarcasm is hilarious. And well, that sounds like a recipe for a podcast that I would want to listen to. Hopefully, I can bring in aspects of some of my favorite podcasts, like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in the Moth. People usually tell me after I tell work stories that I should write a book, but I think this podcast will be more fun. Hopefully we can interact with e- with each other. Hopefully we can all get some stuff off of our chest, you know, that medical community relatables that only we can understand. And hopefully we can also educate the non-medical people about what happens behind the scenes and why things aren't always as easy as they think they should be. But I really want this to be supportive to the medical community by sharing experiences, by being a supportive space. So thank you for being here. I myself am an emergency department nurse, not an ER or emergency room nurse. We're a whole ass department, folks. And so let's just start out talking about how the emergency department looks pre versus post COVID. Folks, if you were ever hospitalized after coming to the emergency department pre-COVID, then you know that you were stabilized in the emergency department and if necessary admitted, and then almost immediately went up to a unit. Nowadays, you will definitely be spending hours in the emergency department unless perhaps you're a critical patient going to the ICU. But minimally, you're going to spend a few hours in the emergency department with the potential to spend days, yes, days, in the emergency department waiting for a room upstairs on the floor. And you will potentially be spending that time in a bed in the hallway because we now typically have more patients than we do rooms. And so now every room has a corresponding hallway bed. What does that mean exactly? Well, let's say we have room 19 that has a bed in it with a patient in that bed. You now also have a bed outside of room 19 referred to as 19 hallway that has, there's a bed that also has a patient in it. We were recently holding 51 patients. Uh, That's two whole units upstairs. And my emergency department only has about 30 to 35 actual rooms. So just the admitted patients alone were more rooms than we had. But then you have to remember, we also have to treat our regular Uh, ED patients. Now, why is this the new norm? I'm not sure. Uh, My best guess is, first of all, that patients got sicker over COVID because they didn't go to the doctor or to the hospital when they should have, either because they couldn't or they were scared. Also, at least in my hospital, rooms that were double occupancy before COVID have remained at single occupancy after the pandemic, which limits bed flow to go upstairs. Now, floor nurses, please don't be coming for me. I'm just trying to highlight understaffing issues. My particular hospital system owns and operates 12 hospitals up and down the East Coast, and They have trouble retaining nurses because they have a monopoly and they get away with paying their nurses below the national average. These hospitals are holding admitted patients in their emergency departments anywhere from 20 to 50 patients. In addition, we are trying to treat emergent ED patients that come by ambulance. 
And this overcrowding in the emergency departments is unsafe for both patients and staff. Patients, like I said, are made to wait days in hallway beds to get a room upstairs. And studies show that the longer patients reside in the emergency department, the higher their mortality rate. And it also puts an undue burden on the emergency department staff. I honestly believe that fire marshal violations are occurring with all the overcrowding. Yet the hospital does nothing to alleviate the overcrowding. So what does a typical emergency department patient look like? Well, if you're in the back of the house, then you are more acute level patient or rather a sicker patient. Things in the uh, MTA are things like overdoses. Overdoses can be intentional or they can be unintentional. If intentional, we save your life if we can, we stabilize you, and you then become a psychiatric referral so that we can try to get you help. If unintentional, we still try to save your life if we can, we stabilize you, and then we let you leave. I wish I could videotape how fun drugs are not. Uh, You fools are puking all over yourselves, pissing on yourselves, drooling on yourselves. Why? Why? I don't get it. Now, I'm not diving into drug addiction in this episode. Those are not the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the stupid college kids or even older and grown and should know better that went to a party and tried ecstasy or meth or cocaine, whatever, for the first time. Um, I may do a more detailed drug use podcast episode uh, further, further down. We also get a lot of drunk people. Uh, We recently had a mother-daughter duo. The daughter was uh, underage with a fake ID, drinking at a bar with her mom. And uh, shocker, the daughter couldn't hold her liquor, fell down, had to be brought to the emergency department. And so then mother and daughter laid in a stretcher together and slept it off. Real, real family bonding we got going on in the emergency department. Um, blood alcohol levels can be quite high in the emergency department. The highest I've ever seen is, well, let me reference. Now, if you're not familiar, legally being drunk is 0.08. So the police can and will arrest you for drunk driving if they catch you driving with a blood alcohol of 0.08 or higher. Now, the highest blood alcohol that I've seen, this is not typical, but the highest I've seen is 0.50. So what is a typical blood alcohol level in the emergency department? Well, it's still pretty damn high. Um, We typically see anywhere from 0.25, which is essentially three times the legal limit, to 0.35, which is four times the legal limit. That, I would say, is our typical range. And, of course, you have the what I say three types of drunks. There's probably more categories. But you have the assholes, you have the criers, and then you sometimes have the nice ones. Um, but regardless, they typically, they'll, they'll sober up enough to start feeling like crap. They'll sign out and leave against medical advice. And then sometimes, you never know, sometimes they come back a short time later after they've uh, hit the bottle again. And it can just be a really vicious cycle. 
Another typical patient that we see in the emergency department are stroke alerts. So a stroke is either there's a vessel blocked in your brain or a vessel broke and you're now bleeding into your brain where you shouldn't be. Now, you guys out there with uncontrolled hypertension or commonly referred to as high blood pressure, I'm talking to you. You guys are ticking time bombs for a stroke. Get it under control. Another thing that we typically see are heart attacks or what we professionally call myocardial infarctions. Um, and then heart attacks lead to codes. So uh, your heart stops beating and you stop breathing. Um, so then people either come in with active CPR happening, which is chest compressions and rescue breathing, or the uh, ambulance crew was able to get them back, was able to get something that we call ROSC, which is return of spontaneous circulation. And then uh, we have to stabilize you and try and make sure that, um, that you don't have another heart attack and die. Uh, also at my hospital, we are a designated trauma hospital. Not all hospitals are, um, but for hospitals that are trauma hospitals, you also get things like um, really gnarly car accidents, motorcycle accidents, shootings, stabbings, um, major falls, whether it be um, from like a ladder or a building or a parking garage. Um, and then we also help people deal with issues that they have from complications with their chronic conditions. So somebody in severe pain from a sickle cell crisis or somebody in diabetic ketoacidosis from uncontrolled diabetes. The list is really endless. And honestly, that's the draw for a lot of emergency department nurses other than the adrenaline rush of saving a patient on the brink of, of death. But you also get to dabble a little in all of the many facets of medicine, I, I promise you no two days are ever the same in the emergency department. Then we have what we call the front of the house, um, which is where we see lower acuity people or not as sick people. Um, these people range from you should be here, but you're not dying, like a broken bone. Um, maybe you cut yourself uh, cooking dinner and you need sutures. Maybe you have a terrible migraine that you can't get under control with your regular meds at home. Uh, then you have these fools that use the emergency department as their primary care office because they can't because they can get away with not paying us. So let me explain that. In 1986, Congress enacted um, what we refer to as EMTALA, which stands for Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, and it ensures public access to emergency services regardless of ability to pay. But just like with everything, people ruin a good thing. So these people come in saying, I woke up this morning with body aches and a fever and chills. And you ask them, well, did you take any Tylenol? No. Or did you give your baby that you just brought in with a fever any Tylenol? And they say, no, I wanted you to see that they had a fever. First of all, 50% of the time, your baby looks fine. Or if they really do look sick, we will believe you that you that they had a fever and you gave Tylenol and then the fever broke. We are only judging you for not giving your sick baby Tylenol and making them suffer. Okay, folks? 
We also have all the people who can't get an appointment with their providers. And so then their providers tell them to come to the emergency department. So that's the doctor's way of CYA, cover your ass. But we're an emergency department, folks. We're here to rule out the things that can kill you. Um, And then we're going to refer you back to follow up with your specialists because our specialty is not letting you die. We did our job. You need to follow up with your specialist. Another big part of our patient population, at least where I work, is ECOs or emergency custody orders. Not sure how this works in other hospital systems, but um, essentially an ECO or emergency custody order, one of your friends, family, someone is concerned that you either can't take care of yourself, that you're a threat to yourself, or that you're a threat to others. And so they go to the magistrate's office and they file a petition saying so. And if the magistrate agrees with you, they issue this ECO and then essentially the police come find you and then they bring you usually against your will to the emergency department. Uh, What happens after you get to the emergency department will be discussed in a future episode dedicated strictly to our psych patients. So if you want to hear what happens after the police drag you in against your will, uh, come back the next couple weeks and I'll be going through that. Um, So let's talk about some extreme or acute cases, essentially uh, story time. Disclaimer, details have been changed to protect patient privacy. But the first story I'll talk about is what I like to refer to as uh, weekend at Bernie's. Um, We had this patient who was brought in to triage, so through the front door essentially, by his family. He was unresponsive and triage couldn't detect a pulse. Family stated that he had been unresponsive for a while and that was why they brought him in. So over the radio, we hear... We need a room in the back for a dead patient. My Myself and another nurse looked at each other like, did we really just hear that? But sure enough, a few seconds later, the triage nurse, which who was a well-seasoned nurse, I, I will tell you, um, comes around the corner like a, a scene straight out of Weekend at Bernie's. Now, I know I'm probably dating myself here. Um, if you aren't familiar with Weekend at Bernie's, you can either pause for a second and Google it or do so at the end of this podcast. But Grandpa was strapped into his wheelchair by a chest strap and was wearing sunglasses and a toboggan on his face and head. So the nurse pushes him to a room. Before we actually get him in the room, a family member comes running after and the as the doctor tries to cordially introduce himself the family member just starts saying repeatedly i'm a doctor i'm a doctor well folks this was not my patient it wasn't even my team and so it sure as shit wasn't going to be my circus so i promptly spun on my heel and went back to what i was doing i heard that they attempted to code him briefly but they were never able to regain a pulse Next story is about a younger couple. Um, Police were called to the residence by the husband's family due to not being able to reach either him or his wife for a while. What's a while? I'm not sure. I think it was a few weeks. It took police some time to gain entry due to all the doors and windows being locked and the curtains were drawn. But finally, a law enforcement officer found a bathroom window that they could open. Once they got inside, 
They found the wife actively bathing the husband with bath wipes at the kitchen table. So apparently the man had died at the kitchen table a few months ago. Yes, I said months ago. Now, no foul play was suspected, but the wife had kept him so clean during that entire time that instead of decomposing, he had like essentially mummified instead. Um, she not only cleaned him, but cleaned anything that would have leaked out of him during this time leading up to the mummification. Law enforcement officers said the apartment was absolutely pristine. Not sure if the wife had a history of mental illness or just went into a state of shock. I can tell you she was quite the character while she stayed with us. Um, but hopefully she's recovered and she's doing okay today. I hope so. Last story is about a woman many years ago who jumped off the seventh floor of a parking garage. Apparently, she had been up there for about two hours before she jumped. So when she finally jumped, there was a lot of witnesses between the law enforcement officers, fire, rescue, EMS. EMS said that she landed on her face um, and bounced, essentially. They immediately rushed to her um, she, and she was unconscious, wasn't breathing. They immediately intubated her on scene, which means they stuck a breathing tube down her throat um, to help her breathe. And then they rushed her to our emergency department. Now, when she um, got to us, we could not feel the pulse. I stepped up on the stool and I had attempted to start chest compressions. But when I tell you it felt like I was trying to do chest compressions on my kitchen counter, I am being literal. No give at all. So the attending tells one of the residents who's pretty um, jacked to get up there and do it. He has the same exact experience. The time of death was called. She was pronounced dead. So why was she so rigid? Well, it's thought that when she landed on her face and neck the way that she did, that she transected her trachea or basically meaning that she like ripped it by how much no one knows because um, she never made it to CT. But when the paramedics intubated her and then used an Ambu bag to deliver breast to the patient, part of the air was escaping that rip in the trachea and entering her chest cavity, her subcutaneous tissue and such and was basically blowing her up like a balloon. Now, basic rescue breathing is one breath every six seconds, and I don't know what the transit time was, and this was like 20 years ago, but I can tell you that her tongue was protruding from her mouth and was swollen to the size of my entire hand, and I do not have demure hands. Um, as I cleaned her up a bit afterwards, I heard this like faint, wet hissing sound, I finally realized that in my use of a wet washcloth to clean her up, I ended up dislodging a tiny pebble from her arm and the hissing sound was air escaping the subcutaneous tissue of her arm. It was, it was quite the experience. All right. Well, another thing that I would like to do on this podcast is I would like to highlight um, side hustles that people in our medical community um, have going on. If you email me your side hustle, as long as they aren't OnlyFans accounts, I'm happy to talk them up on the podcast from anywhere across the country. Uh, today, I'm going to start with my friend Darcy. She owns a spa in downtown Norfolk, Virginia. 
Um, if you're in that area, look her spa up. It's called Mi Piera. Um, she's Panamanian, and so it has a Spanish name, and I probably butchered it. However, there will be a link to it on our Facebook page. So let me mention that. The Facebook page is called Codes and Chaos. And I definitely want to hear from you guys via email or Facebook. Um, we're only doing positive and constructive feedback, please. That's all that will be acknowledged. Otherwise, you're going to get blocked. Um, we definitely want to be here to support each other, not mean girl each other. But I think this will be a lot more fun um, if it's interactive, especially you non-medical people who probably have tons of questions about things that I mentioned but did not explain. So the email is codesandchaospodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you include the podcast part because apparently just codes and chaos was already taken. So codesandchaospodcast at gmail.com. And again, the Facebook page is um, codes and chaos. All right, lastly, shout out to influencer Tabitha Brown, who would tell you all to have the most amazing day. But even if you can't, don't you dare go messing up nobody else's. And that'll do it for today, friends. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I'll come back every Tuesday to hear more thoughts and stories of codes and chaos in the emergency department. In the meantime, be well, everybody, and see you next time.